Hello and welcome to the She Reads Truth podcast, where we open our Bibles and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. I'm your host, Amanda Bible Williams. And I'm your other host, Rachel Myers. And y'all, this week we are kicking off our Ecclesiastes study. Yes, this is week one of Ecclesiastes. The subtitle of this book is Life Under the Sun, and that's for sure what we are going to be talking about today, as well as life through the lens of eternity. Our guest today, I'm so excited to introduce to you Dr. George Grant. Amanda, most every Nashville friend that we have on here, you have known long before I ever met, and this is an exception to that. Yes. This week, Dr. Grant, who was my pastor in 2006 when we moved to Nashville from Chicago, and has been a pastor and friend ever since then. We are so excited. This man loves God's Word and has had his hand in the work of She Reads Truth over the years. He was a great partner and friend as we created the She Reads Truth Bible and the Bible reading plans and keystone verses that are found in that. And beautifully, he is actually kicking off a study with his congregation of the book of Ecclesiastes, just as we are starting with you guys. So the timing of this, we can't get over it. We're so excited to go through this book and specifically to have Dr. Grant as our guest. Y'all are going to really love this episode. And if I may say so myself, you're also going to love hearing George read scripture. Let's get right to it. So this morning as I was getting ready for you guys to arrive, I was just kind of mindlessly clearing away the coffee table, and I picked up a book that I bought for coffee table book reasons and have never actually opened or really even considered. I just thought it was pretty. And the irony of the title and what we're talking about today, it's an interior design book, and the book is called The Things That Matter. Ah. And I chuckled to myself as I picked it up and put it away and thought, okay, let's talk about Ecclesiastes. Yeah, alternate yeah. subtitle for the book of Ecclesiastes. Yeah. This is a book that addresses all of those questions and does so in a profoundly unsettling way. Yeah. And that's a good thing. This is in God's Word because this is something we need. Unfortunately, we don't look at the things that we need until we're in the midst of a crisis. Mm -hmm. And so I'm so glad in God's <laughs> providence that She Reads Truth gets to this at this moment. Yeah, it's interesting that you're right. It's an unsettling time. And we don't often dive headfirst toward unsettling, but we need that. And it is interesting also how many of us are not as chomping at the bit to return to normal, I feel a little bit of a sorrow as we come out of this quarantine. And I don't know if I'm alone in that or oh, not. Oh, no. My wife, Karen, has mourned yeah. Yeah. Uh, the fact that we're starting to see lots more traffic and yeah. people out and about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the sense of returning to the hubbub and the hustle and the tyranny of the urgent is something that I think we need to consciously resist. And that's one of the things that the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us of. Yes. And that's why I love it so much. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary book. It's wonderful also that the timing, I know that you are beginning a sermon series at your church that you pastor this coming Sunday. Yes. So you've already, I mean, you're already in the book of Ecclesiastes, but especially right now because of that. Yeah, I was originally planning to preach through Leviticus. Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to preach through Leviticus from now all the way up to Advent. I mean, I would be a little fascinated to hear that sermon series, honestly. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, Leviticus is incredible because it shows us the gospel with mm -hmm. such clarity. Not only the need for the gospel, but the structure of the gospel, what atonement looks like, why atonement is necessary. So I was really looking forward to Leviticus. It shows us the mountain of the Lord. Yeah. But as we were wrapping up a series that we've been going through in the book of Romans all through the winter and spring, I started to just wrestle with all of the questions mm -hmm. that inevitably are raised yeah. in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so I went to our elders and I said, guys, <laughs> change of plans. <laughs> what would you think if when we get to the end of this Romans series, what if we take up Ecclesiastes? And of course, the response was, 
huh? <laughs> <laughs> what? Because nobody probably thinks of Ecclesiastes first for a book about a time of crisis or a book of comfort. Mm-hmm. But that's precisely what it is. It reminds us where our joy actually lies and all of the places that it doesn't. Yes. Yes. And you're right. I think comforting is the word because if all we are saying to each other is, it's going to be okay, you know, this too shall pass, then we're not looking at what is actually happening, which is that our lives as we knew them have just been dismantled. Mm -hmm. And the things that we spent all of our time doing in many cases don't matter or the way that we did them. Like I was thinking this morning as I was rereading through the first two thirds of this book, just why do I have such a hard time making time for things that really matter? Mm -hmm. And what is it that's getting in the way of that? And what are these, you know, and a lot of it is habitual, like things that Mm -hmm. we just turn to just because it's what we've always done. And, you know, as a mom with four children living under my roof, like, I wonder, you know, what are David and I doing to teach them what really matters rather than just how to get, you know, from A to B, from, you know, morning to night and then do it again tomorrow. Like, what are the things you were talking about reading to your grandchildren? Like, what are those moments that are going to define childhoods and lives? Right. Mm -hmm. I think Ecclesiastes is... Solomon's effort to ask those questions. Most scholars believe that this is written at the end of his life Mm -hmm. as a kind of declaration of repentance. Because this is a man who was extraordinary. The first several chapters in 1 Kings about his life show us this extraordinary wisdom and extraordinary breadth and depth of accomplishment. And then we get to 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12, and you start to see it all come apart as he becomes so, so deeply ingrained in the things under the sun. And by the end of his life, he realizes none of it was worth it. None of it was right. Mm -hmm. None of it brought him joy. And so he starts asking the question, so what does What does bring the joy? And that's really what this book is about. Yeah. I would love to just dive into this scripture right now. George, would you read for us? See, I called you George. I did it. You did. (laughs) Good job. George, would you read for us Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11? I will. The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all of his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It it returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, Turning, turning goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new. It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before, and of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, first of all, I would love a George Grant narrated 
Bible, please. <laughs> and secondly, yes and amen. Let it be so. Every time I read verse eight, I take a deep, tired breath. <laughs> All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. And I feel like it's hard because I know we can only speak of our quarantine and COVID time experience from within our own experience, but it feels in, you know, in my home and then looking around, it feels that that is part of this interruption is that we have all had to just admit like the way we are living is tiresome and wearisome. Like we are weary and it's telling about the source of our joy where are we being filled and where are we turning for the things that matter? But goodness, that verse eight, all things are wearisome more than anyone can say. And you can just hear it in his writing and in his voice. Yeah. One of the things that Solomon, who we believe is the author of this, one of the things that Solomon is wrestling with is everlasting joy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Permanence, the things that matter most. And what he realizes is everything that he spent his life doing, good things and foolish things, none of it brought that everlasting joy. And so he says futility or vanity, as a lot of translations have it. Mm -hmm. The word doesn't mean empty of all meaning. It's not the sort of materialistic, secular nihilism that somebody like Nietzsche or a lot of modern philosophers would have it. It's absurdity, really. It's mm -hmm. the weariness of the repetition of the tasks that we do over and over again, and the sense of loss that we have in lives that we lose around us. And we wonder, where do those memories go? Mm -hmm. where, where are the true memorials to the forgotten people all around us. Does any of this mean anything? And eventually he wrestles well with these things, as you would expect Solomon to do. But it takes him a while as he has to sort through the laundry list of everything that he's built his life out of. Yeah, I would encourage you listeners, you she's, as you start strong with us in this book of Ecclesiastes to also finish strong, because this book, it is a complete thought with a beginning, with an introduction, with a conclusion. And it matters to read the entire thing and not just day one. And thankfully, he sums up in, yes, in, regular, way. Yes. in, in intervals. There's a mm -hmm. little section at the end of chapter four, in the beginning of chapter five, yeah. where he starts to sum up, and then all of chapter seven, and then all of chapter 10, and you have these kind of summations. And then by the time you get to chapter 12, you suddenly realize where it was all going. Yeah. But he actually gives us glimmers of hope right from the beginning. You know, that first little section of uh, verses it's so really 3 through 11 are a kind of prose poem mm -hmm. in Hebrew. And you get the same thing at the beginning of chapter 3, the very famous, there is a time. Mm -hmm. And those prose poems help break up that sort of laundry list of futility, of vanity. And you start to realize, okay, he's composing a kind of orchestra. Mm. Piece and this orchestra piece is going somewhere. So you've got to got to stick with it and get all the way to the end, and you'll start to realize every bit of it, every dab and every daub, was absolutely worth it. Yeah, you know, I was talking to Oliver, our thirteen-year-old, last night, and he mentioned something in passing about living a million days. And I said, do you know how many years a million days is? Do you know that? And so he ran in the house and asked Alexa, how many years in a million days? And it's, you know, something like 2,700 years. And I said, Oliver, do you know how many days the average human lives? And he was like, no idea. And I said, well, let's assume you live 80 years. How many days is that? He ran inside and asked Alexa and came back out <laughs> and he said, 30,000, 30,000 days. And he was just kind of flabbergasted. He said, that's not very many. And I said, how did you spend your day today? This was one of your 30,000. And we talked about it. And it was a really fascinating conversation that I didn't jump into or introduce to him intentionally. But it was fascinating for both of us to talk about the days 
that the Lord has made and given to us. And we don't know how many we get, but to talk to my 13-year-old son who has, I hope, more days ahead of him than I do, but to have that moment of like exchange of wisdom as I'm actually sitting with Ecclesiastes open in my lap felt like a very kind moment from the Lord to remind me to number my days and to help me teach him to number his days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And again, this morning, I was reading this day one reading again, and Psalm 39 is a related passage that we included in the book. And I read verse four through six. Mm -hmm. It says, Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human being stands as only a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. And then verse 7, Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. Mm-hmm. And I texted that last verses 6 and 7 to my sister this morning. Mm-hmm. Just that, because we just text each other scripture more often than words. Well, not more often, but pretty often. And my text to her this morning from Psalm 39 was, Indeed, they rush around in vain, gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Now, Lord, what do I wait for? My hope is in you. And she said, I needed that exact word this morning. And I think we all did. Absolutely. The great Puritan Thomas Brooks that once said, Your life is short. Your duties are many. But your assistance is great and your reward is sure. Herein is the path of wisdom. Therefore, faint not, stand fast, and hold on in all the ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends of it all. Heaven shall make amends of it all. Of it all. And that's really what Solomon gets to eventually. In chapter 2, he sort of sums up everything, where he starts talking about where real joy comes from, and he makes it plain that there is enjoyment in eating and drinking and even in work. Mm-hmm. But uh, he says, this is all from the hand of God. It's only when we see these things as gifts of grace, mm-hmm. as means of grace, that they start to actually satisfy. And he goes on and he says, <laughs> for apart from him, who can eat mm-hmm. or who can have any enjoyment at all? And so what Solomon is really wanting to do is not poo-poo the world. <laughs> He's not trying to say, <laughs> right. oh, it's all bosh. Mm-hmm. He's saying, get your perspective clear. Number your days. Eliminate the junk. Mm-hmm. Focus on the things that actually matter. Rest in his provision, run to his mercy, lay hold of his grace. Amen. It's interesting because I think when we have this general connotation about the book of Ecclesiastes, we think of it as a book that will make it, after reading it, hard to get out of bed. Just a real, like, I don't know what is there worth living for. But when you read it, you find that Ecclesiastes just does the effective and important job of putting life under the sun in its place. Right. It puts it in the, under the backdrop of eternity. We can see the smallness of life under the sun and the greatness of eternity. And it just helps us remember it's not really the life that we live, but it's how we live it, which is a turn of phrase that has, you know, that sounds so tidy. There's more to it. But for me, Ecclesiastes puts all of this life under the sun in its place. And, you know, that's really the theme of the whole Bible. Yeah. The whole Bible is really mm-hmm. about fixing our eyes, attaching our lives, committing our gifts to the things that matter, and uncluttering ourselves with the things that don't. That's, in a sense, what sanctification or growth mm-hmm. in maturity in Christ is. It's not somehow we become ethereally saintly. It's that we start to cull out the things that pollute and destroy. And so what Solomon is really trying to do is he's trying to sort it all out. 
One of the things that I find fascinating is Solomon calls himself the king in Jerusalem, but the title that he goes by in the book is a Hebrew word, Koheleth, and it's pretty much untranslatable. Okay. (laughs) So we have it translated in our various translations as either teacher or preacher. That's the most common. Mm -hmm. The word actually means assembler or gatherer. Hmm. Because he's a little bit like an investigator. He is. He's assembling all of this information, this data. And he looks at these data points from his life, looking back on his life. He's assembling proverbs and wise sayings. He's assembling the little bits of knowledge. In a sense, what Ecclesiastes is, is it's kind of Solomon's scrapbook of his life. Mm -hmm. He's been scrapbooking all of these bits of info, and he pulls it all together, and he's trying to make sense of it. It's a giant jigsaw puzzle, and he puts the pieces together, and at the end, he says, aha, Hmm. aha, it's what I knew from the beginning, and somehow I forgot in the midst of all of the tyranny of the urgent, the hubbub, the turmoil of life. He dismisses both the passing pleasures of this world and the temporal travails of this world. And he realizes that they're both basically the same. Yeah. I love that observation because even the language that he uses, if we go back to chapter 1 in verse 12, right after to pick up where you were reading earlier. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. Verse 13, I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. And that applied my mind, I feel like he uses that kind of language a few times. It gives me this picture of a researcher, you know, like I'm going to apply my mind. And then in chapter two, and um, and in verse 16, he says, see, I have amassed. The Hebrew word there literally means I filled up my basket with all of these bits of information. Right. And then in chapter two, I feel like he does the same with his effort. Beginning in verse four and just kind of like skimming through this section, all of the action verbs really struck me like, I increased my achievements, I made gardens, I constructed reservoirs, I acquired servants, I owned livestock, I amassed silver and gold, I gathered male and female singers, I became great, and I surpassed. What a portfolio. Right? What a portfolio. I mean, he has really applied himself. Right. But it makes me think of Paul, because Paul does that, is it in Philippians, where he also gives his Look at my resume. Yeah. Yeah. I have a really impressive resume. And in both of them, they conclude. Yeah. Yeah, what's interesting, I hadn't thought about that Pauline parallel, but what Solomon is portraying here is... Solomon is a great king. These are all kingly tasks. Mm -hmm. What Paul does in Philippians is he's outlining how he's the perfect Pharisee. (laughs) And he actually enumerates the steps of Talmudic perfection. So both of them are saying, I did it. I did it. I did all of the stuff that a king, all of the stuff that a Pharisee should want. And Paul finally says, I count it all loss. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the New Testament Solomon. <laughs> he is. He is. Well, no, that's not no exactly doubt. true, but... <laughs> yeah, thankfully, he didn't quite <laughs> go down the path, <laughs> no. but he almost did. He, yeah. Thank the Lord he was stopped on the road to Damascus. Yeah. In rereading the introduction to this study book and to the She Reads Ecclesiastes or He Reads Ecclesiastes page... There is a line in the message and purpose section. It says that Ecclesiastes shows us that we and our works are futile, that is, destined to perish, and we must not waste our lives trying to justify our existence with pursuits that ultimately mean nothing. And I feel like that language, trying to justify our existence, really resonates with me because to me, What I'm seeing in Ecclesiastes is there is practical wisdom is like, what are like the conversation you had with Oliver, Rachel, like, what did you do with your day today? Mm -hmm. You know, and if I ask myself that any day, like how convicting that is, like, what am I doing that's lasting and that matters? 
but also... And then you get your screen time notification where it tells you how many hours you spent on your phone. (laughs) Or you've turned that off because it's just too much right now. (laughs) But so there's a practical element and then there's a perspective shift where, you know, a lot of the things we work so hard at matter. I mean, I think of the work that we all do, it would be very easy for us to justify the busyness of our ministries, you know, and the work that we do and being so busy reading the Bible that I don't read the Bible with my children, right? that kind of thing. And so... Or how many pastors mm -hmm. are so busy pastoring everyone else that they never pastor their own family? They never tend their own heart. How many pastors have no friends, Yeah, actual friends, to hold them accountable, to walk with them, who can speak directly to them, who can call them on the carpet when they need to be called on the carpet. It's that kind of stuff that in the busyness mm-hmm. of life, we, we start to lose track of. And it's frighteningly easy to do so because, right. you know, even... Just speaking to our experience, Rachel, you know, one of the things that has been the hardest for us in the years of She Reads Truth has been the image that we can unintentionally give that we don't struggle with that. Mm -hmm. That what, you know, that, well, of course, we have, you know, textbook quiet times and family Bible studies and all of these things when the truth is that it is a great struggle. And it is something that, you know, that you, Dr. Rant, kind of in advising us, like what the listener doesn't know is that we sat down with you in the very early days of She Reads Truth. Eight years ago. Sought your wisdom. And we, to this day, talk about that conversation, Rachel and I do, just to build one another up, to hold one another accountable. We are so thankful for the gift of the two of us, that there is a pair of us, yes. that we can have that accountability and and back and forth and ask those hard questions. How are you spending your time and, and how are you spending your life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but to know that it is not necessarily what we say in public that is our greatest... The greatest threat that we pose to our community. Right. But mm-hmm. it's how we live our lives right. and living consecrated lives. And so... That conversation meant so much to us. And to me, it is that perspective that if we, as we were talking earlier about, as we step out of, we hope we will eventually step out of this kind of quarantine time. But as we do, that we're going to have to fight Mm -hmm. to keep the perspective that we've gained. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's very similar to this kingdom lens that it has to be an intentional fight because there is an enemy who does not want us to have that perspective absolutely and who vies for our attention in all the ways that he knows he can that work for us okay so i want to talk about this work idea from chapter two because as and i want to get back to the lens thing because let's go there let's go there the the kingdom and under the sun thing is a really really important aspect of well, the Well, let's book go of where you want to go. You go. You, you go. <laughs> well, we can go both places. But, you know, at the beginning, in the introduction, one of the things that the study says is that, in a sense, you have to have bifocals yeah, right. to read the book of Ecclesiastes. You have to have two lenses. On the one hand, Solomon is gathering. He's investigating everything that he's done under the sun. Mm-hmm. But he's constantly remembering that there is something beyond everything under the sun. There is the kingdom. There is eternity. And what he is attempting to do is clear out the clutter so that he can see that eternal perspective. And that's so important for us. We shouldn't come to the book of Ecclesiastes simply as a spring cleaning for the soul kind of book. Yeah, It's not just that. It really is a worldview. Perhaps the greatest single classic ever written for a Christian worldview perspective is Augustine's City of God. He does what Solomon does in Ecclesiastes. He paints two different pictures. There's the city of man, everything under the sun, and there's the city of God, the kingdom. And essentially what he does is he tries to understand all of history through the lens of these two cities, 
looking at all of life through these two lenses. That's what Solomon's trying to do. He's trying to build for us a consistent worldview perspective that will enable us to live our lives, not having to constantly get back to that spring cleaning moment when we're standing over the graveside of a friend or when we're stuck in the house for six weeks because of COVID Mm -hmm. 2020 or 2021 or whatever else is next. (laughs) What Solomon is attempting to do is he's attempting to say, I learned from all of my foolish mistakes, I lost sight of what matters. And you need not lose sight of those things yourselves. Because he tried it. He's like, I tried it all. <laughs> I've done it all. I've done it all. And I'm reporting back from having done all of the things to tell you that it's meaningless. Wealth, power, fame, you know, glory. It's like Brad- wine, women, song. It's- I mean, it's he right. had everything and it was nothing. It's like Brad Pitt's interview in Vanity Fair from years and years yes. ago. Yes. Where he said, I have everything. And it turns out once you have everything, you're really just left with yourself. Right. And it's not as great as you think. Right. Right. And of course, most of modern life that is, is a, that is a it, summation. I, that's not a yeah, direct yeah, yeah. quote. <laughs> that is the essence of modern life, an attempt to escape from ourselves. It's one of the reasons why, you know, you can go to a restaurant or you used to be able to go to a restaurant <laughs> and you can see a family of five and they're sitting there and nobody's talking to each other. Yeah. They're all with their face in their phones mm-hmm. or you drive down the road. You never see a teenager in a car without headphones on. Hmm. Or their earbuds in. Mm -hmm. We're constantly filling our lives with enough noise and enough stuff that we don't ever have to face ourselves. Mm -hmm. What Solomon wants to do is he wants us to say, okay, here it all is. What actually matters? How can we actually find joy and balance? Mm -hmm. And he shows us. This episode is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers thousands of inspiring classes on everything from illustration to photography to marketing and business development. Their wide range of classes is perfect for lifelong learners of all types. So whether you're a beginner, a pro, a dabbler, or a master, Skillshare has classes to fit your schedule and your skill level. Right now, Skillshare is such a great resource to have so that you can stay inspired, express yourself, and connect to a community of creatives worldwide. Since we're all spending a little more time in our homes lately, I've had my eye on a class called Style Your Space with Emily Henderson. I've always wished that I had an eye for design, like my friend Rachel, so I'm excited to start learning through Skillshare. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash SheReadsTruth, where our listeners get two free months of their premium membership. That's two months for free at Skillshare.com slash SheReadsTruth. Happy learning, friends. Okay, back to the show. The book calls us to enjoy and to, because in, if we go on to chapter three, kind of after the beautiful you know, verse, the poem of the mystery of time, there's an occasion for everything. When you get past that, in verse 12, for example, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and enjoy the good life. I love that. Enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever anyone eats, drinks, and enjoys all his efforts. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it, God works so that all people will be in awe of him. Like There is an appropriate somberness that we will walk away from when we read Ecclesiastes. There is that realization that so much of what we seek after is empty should cause pause. It should interrupt us, right? But to know that we don't just sit there, it reminds me of you know the call to see our sin, but then immediately you know, to see the cross and to see our sin in light of the cross. And if we just dwell in our sin and we don't rejoice in the grace and the beauty of the cross, then 
we're missing the whole of the gospel. Well, I feel like we're missing the whole of the book of Ecclesiastes when we sit and dwell in the, well, this is all, so that's what COVID has proven to us, is when that we only, nothing matters. When we only use half of the bifocals. Yes. Right. And so that mm-hmm. kingdom lens is what, because it's hard, you know, when we were talking about how a lot of families have had quality time and this has been a sweet season for many of us, this has also been a very, you know, we acknowledge that, you know, you said, Dr. Grant, this has been a very hard season for a lot of people. And so it can feel you feel a little bit of survivor's guilt of just, well, this is actually, I've enjoyed much of this. And so it can be hard to, I can feel guilty for enjoying things when I know that this heaviness is real. But it's what you just said, Rachel, it takes both lenses of, it also reminds me of when we were in such a hard season with our family and you went on vacation and you were like, I feel bad having fun with my family right now because I know what you are experiencing. But for me, I didn't feel that way at all. It brought me so much joy and hope to watch you enjoying your family because it reminded me that what I could see in our experience right now wasn't the full picture. Mm-hmm. One of the things that Solomon does is he constantly gets us back there because as he walks through all of the vanity, he reminds us in a sense that vanity is God's scepter. It's the emptiness, the repetition, the constancy of it, and the doubts that it all inevitably causes, you know, to spring up in our minds. All of that is used by God to call us back to remind us of the things that actually do matter. And then he tells us, nothing is better than this. Hmm. It is good and fitting, as he says in chapter 5. Or, so there is joy, as he says in chapters 8 and 9. So we have this balancing where he says, okay, come to the end of all of this, but don't despair. Because meaning can be had But it can only be had in light of eternity. In light of eternity, these good and beautiful and true things around us can be richly edifying and joyous. We can still cry at the movies and we can still, you know, hold our breath in the morning when we see the dew on the flowers in the springtime, when we hear the leaves rustling in the wind that can take our breath away and we can say, oh, isn't it glorious? Isn't it good? Solomon says, those are the moments when eternity and temporality meet. And that is where the Christian life is lived. But that's a description of that verse that, you know, so many of us love in Ecclesiastes 3, Verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also put eternity in their hearts, but no one can discover the work God has done from beginning to end. He has put eternity in our hearts. And that, I think, is what we feel. You know, and it's that famous C.S. Lewis quote that we were meant for another world. Like those feelings that we have and the stirring, you know, to be so deeply stirred by something as simple as leaves rustling. Why? Why are we made that way? Well, we're made that way. Because God is constantly calling us to him. Karen and I often sit on our back deck for dinner time, and we have a lot of wild turkeys. And right about the time that we're finished with dinner, it's time for our girls, as we call them, <laughs> uh, to make their way into our backyard. And if you've ever seen a turkey fly, it's not the most elegant thing in the world. <laughs> They don't land well. They kind of crash land. But it is a glorious thing. We sit there and we laugh, belly laugh, every time we see them fly up into the trees to roost for the night. And there's such simple joy in that. And you think, you know, you try and tell somebody, yeah, we saw the turkeys fly up and roost in the trees. And they think, wow, your life is interesting. I guess you had to be there. (laughs) You had to be there. But it's those little things that Solomon is making us aware of. Those are the things that bring real joy when we have eternity in perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
You know that verse where it says, he makes everything appropriate in its time. The word that's uh, translated for appropriate there is sometimes translated as beautiful. It's a word that literally means properly adorned. So you think of it in terms of what's a properly adorned garden? Well, it's one that's in full bloom. Mm -hmm. What is a properly adorned wife? It's someone who is crowned with her husband's love. What is a properly adorned work? It's work that has been done in the light of God's goodness and grace, done to the best of our ability. It makes us full of joy. What Solomon is saying is, there, there is where life needs to be lived. Okay, I want to talk more about the work. It's in day three of this week. In chapter two, honestly, Dr. Grant, I would love for you to read it for us if you would. Chapter two, verses maybe 18 through 23. I want to, as I was reading it this morning, I just started writing in the margins of my study book. I wrote farmers and pastors and the work that Amanda, you and I do at She Reads Truth and parents. I thought about parents and I want to hear what Solomon has to say about work. And I want to talk about it. Would you read that for us, Dr. Grant? Absolutely. I just like it when you read it. (laughs) I love reading it as well because, you know, there's something about reading God's Word out loud. Yes. Augustine, who I talked about a little bit earlier, was actually converted because he saw the marvel of Ambrose, his mentor, reading out loud. Ambrose did something that most people didn't do. He studied and read silently most of the time. But when he came to Scripture, he read it out loud. And he did it in a way that Augustine had never heard it read before. And it gripped his heart. Well, this makes me feel better because my kids on a daily basis, especially working from home, will walk past my bedroom door or my office door and hear me reading Scripture out loud because I just comprehend it better when I can hear it and say it, you know. It's a way of experiencing, you yes. know, it's like a whole body experience of the word rather than just the mental. My kids hear their mama reading scripture a lot. <laughs> well, you know, great writing should always be read out loud. Yes. Poetry yeah. should be read out loud. You should never sit there and read silently. The highwayman came riding, riding, riding. <laughs> the highwayman came riding up to the old end door. I mean, that needs to be read out loud. So, so this needs to be read out loud. I hated all my work that I labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is futile. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there is a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For All his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is futile. But then he goes on. And this really is the key to understanding the whole passage. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? This is the heart and soul of where Solomon wants us to go. And then he concludes by saying, to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner... He gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This, too, 
is futile and a pursuit of the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I love that phrase, pursuit of the wind. It's used many, many times in this book, in this translation, and it feels like the perfect image, Mm -hmm. just chasing after the wind. G.K. Chesterton has a story called Chasing After One's Hat. (laughs) And he describes this comical scene of a man standing on a railway platform, and his hat blows off. And, you know, he asks the question, why is that so funny? And when the man stumbles and falls, why is it funny that he falls? And he says, well, it's funny because it is the universal condition of man. We're all fallen. It is the universal condition. Mm -hmm. We're chasing after something that we'll never catch. And it's comical chase. And Solomon wants us to see how comical it is, not because we should just let our hat blow away. It's not because it's not a fun thing to run in the wind. It's because he wants us to gain perspective. He wants us to suddenly look at life through those two lenses rather than just simply through the one. And that's how we, after reading this passage in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, that's how we respond. Because when I read this, I think, okay, you know, as a parent, is my work futile? I'm going to raise my son and I'm going to do my very best to raise him in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And he will find a wife. And then she gets to inherit, in in many ways, the good work that I hope to have done and that Ryan hopes to have done. And I think about farmers who plow fields for their lifetime, and then they die, and their fields are left to whoever comes behind them. And like I said, I think of pastors who shepherd a congregation faithfully for years and decades, and then they die or go on and someone comes behind them and inherits the work that they have done. Or worse... Nobody comes behind them. Yeah. Yeah. I I was recently in Scotland and visited the church where Thomas Chalmers first became famous and uh, where a huge revival and renewal broke out. It's a tiny little stone chapel out in the middle of nowhere, a place called Kilmeny. And it's abandoned, it's no longer used. And I took a group of men there, and we were there. We did some filming, and one of the guys said to me, this is just so tragic. It is so sad. It's it's as if it was for nothing. And, of course, what Solomon wants us to eventually see is, no, no, no. None of it was wasted. Every moment matters. And those moments of glory and majesty and renewal and revival have eternal consequences. And it's only when we look at things through that second lens, the lens of the kingdom, that we can catch a glimpse of the fact that even an empty, dusty chapel in the middle of nowhere still has weight and significance because of the eternal consequences in thousands of lives that have been made. And I said to him, as I turned to him, I said, because of this place, we're here now. Yeah. Because of what happened here, what God did here, how God changed things here, we're here now. It wasn't for nothing. Mm -hmm. It wasn't chasing after the wind. And so when we think about parenting or when we think about farming or whatever good work the Lord has given us to do, because work is a pre-fall invitation command, the work that we have ahead of us, yes, if you look with the half of the lens that says it's going to end and it's going to be inherited or not inherited by somebody else, that can feel, like you said, and like Solomon says, that can feel futile. But when we look at it in the scope of eternity, and if we faithfully walk with the Lord and do justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with our God in whatever we're called to do, parenting, preaching, whatever it is, making mashed potatoes, we are in the view of eternity. We are doing the most beautiful thing that we can be doing. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
making mashed potatoes was the best thing I could come up I with. Liked guys. <laughs> I liked it. I liked it. Laundry. Think, yes. Laundry. Yes, oh. sir. That, that, that's a perfect Ecclesiastes image. Yes. Is, laundry's never really done. Ever. Laundry. Dishes. dishes. For me, it's dishes. Because yeah. you're, oh. you're dirtying clothes by wearing them while you fold exactly. laundry. Exactly. While you're doing the laundry, you've, you know, so. And I think yeah. it's more, you know, Ray, you said that it feels futile. Well, I think under the sun, it is. Like, if we only have yeah. the world's lens, I think it's more than it feels futile. I think it is. Yeah. But that is, and what's so frustrating is we will never fully understand God's ways. And we do not always get to see the harvest and, you know, what he does with our efforts and our obedience or faithfulness that... We don't always get to see that. Well, it's like you said last week, Amanda, we not only don't have the perspective and the understanding to explain these things, we also don't have the authority right, to explain them or to make sense of them. I so appreciate there's a supplemental passage that is in next week's reading, but this conversation called it to mind and it's Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor and who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? It's one of the reasons that we spend our, and it's a blessing to get to, to spend our days calling people back to the word because I need to read truth daily or my lens gets cloudy really fast, Mm. my kingdom lens. And to know that, you know, God's ways are untraceable. I can try as hard as I might, but I'm not going to, on this side of glory, I will not fully understand what Mm. I'm seeing and not seeing. Mm -hmm. But what we know is who he is and we know his character and we know what he's done Mm-hmm. We know what he's doing and what he said he will do. Mm-hmm. And we have to plant our flag there. Mm-hmm. Amen. Jeremiah Burroughs, great Puritan, another great Puritan, said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition to see eternity, this is the heart of wisdom. To see eternity, this is the heart of wisdom. That feels like an exclamation point on this conversation. I love that. I want to go back before we, I'm so anxious to get to beauty, goodness, and truth with you specifically. But before we do, you mentioned Thomas Chalmers a minute ago, which reminds me that I want to know more. I know that you are probably one of the most prolific writers that I've ever met. You've got how many dozen books that you've published, and you are so generous with your writing. But right now, you have a project that has been in the works for a very long time. I know that you shared some of it with us as we were assembling the She Reads Truth Bible. And you, you know, that idea in the She Reads Truth Bible of having sort of a keystone verse for every book of the Bible so that we could have a big picture understanding of those books as we go through them. But that didn't start with the She Reads Truth Bible, not even close. But you started talking about it with me then. I want you to talk about it. Well, I have long loved the influence of Thomas Chalmers, who is one of the fathers of the modern missions movement, the modern Bible society movement. He was a professor, a publisher, a thinker. He was influential in the life of people like Wilberforce, a leader in the abolitionist movement. I mean, he was really one of those remarkable Renaissance men, but he was first and foremost a pastor and a discipler, and he loved to take young men and women and teach them the Word of God. Part of the reason was that he had been raised in a Christian home and actually did not come to know Christ until he was already a pastor, Hmm. had been a pastor for eight years. And he went through a crisis, and he suddenly realized pretty much what Solomon realized, that he had been squandering all of this time and his extraordinary gifts. And so he threw himself into a study of the Bible. 
And one of the things that he did was he tried to identify a key verse in every chapter, first of the New Testament, and then eventually in every book of the Bible and in every chapter of the book of Psalms. And he just did some extraordinary work. And he used those verses as memory verses, both for himself and for his young disciples. And the idea that he had was, if he could just memorize 16 verses, he would have the entire outline of the book of Romans, the complete arc of the Apostle Paul's argument. If he could memorize just six verses, he'd have all of the book of Ephesians. If he had, you know, four verses, he'd have all of Philippians. So the idea was to identify these key verses. And of course, we use them in the She Reads Truth and He Reads Truth Bibles, and I love that. But I I wanted to go further, and so we've created some notebooks and some other study materials that I'm really excited about, and I have taught the methodology of studying the Bible. Basically, it's an adaptation of an old medieval approach, but adding reformational Bible truth, gospel truth elements to it, where you read the Bible backwards, forwards, upwards, and downwards. So backwards, you take a passage and you think, are there precedents in the Old Testament? Are there other places in the Gospels that really speak to this verse? Forwards is, what does this say about where the theology of the New Testament and the Gospel is going? Upwards is systematic theology. What systematic theology elements are spoken of in this verse? And then downwards, where are parallel passages, where are passages that say exactly the same thing, kind of cross-referencing. And it's a way of studying the Bible in its totality. And of course, with She Reads Truth, you've got so many of those elements. So in this first study, you're not only going to be reading Ecclesiastes, you're also going to be reading from the Psalms. And, you know, that forward, backward, upward, downward you know, richness, observe what's there, apply what's there, pray through what's there. That's an incredibly deep and rich way of studying the Bible. And so I've just taken Chalmers' kind of structure and I've put it together and I'm pretty excited about it. That gets me really excited. <laughs> to re- we have some of those notebooks on the way to our homes we and do. we're very excited about that. Does that have a name, the upward down? Does there a Well, it's based on the idea of the Lexio Divina. That's what I wondered, because I've heard that term, that phrase, but I've never fully understood what it meant. It's a term that has been thrown around a lot. There are abuses of it, kind of new age, sort of mystical applications of it. But what Chalmers did was he wanted his students to be able to see what's there, apply what's there, interpret what's there, pray through what's there, and then identify the gospel in every single passage of Scripture. If all of Scripture tells us of our need for Christ and of Christ's provision for us, then we need to be able to see it in Ecclesiastes, in Leviticus, as clearly and as surely as in the book of Romans. What a gift, what a gift the word is that we can dig that deeply into God's word and that we can trust it, that it's trustworthy and true. And it just, I mean, it brings tears to think that we can spend a lifetime doing that and learn more about God, learn more about the gospel, more about this world and ourselves, and that we can trust him with that. It's and just that amazing. It's accessible to all of us. Yes, anyone. You know, as, as William Tyndall said, I want the ordinary plowboy yeah. to be able to know as much from God's word as the greatest scholar. Yeah. I love it. That's so much our heart for She Reads Truth is that the Bible is for you. Mm-hmm. It is about God. Mm-hmm. It is for you to read. Mm-hmm. And you can read it right where you are. Mm-hmm. It just gets me fired up, Dr. Yeah. Grant. Well, <laughs> the phrase beauty, goodness, and truth is a phrase that our listeners are familiar with, our readers are familiar with. 
because even in this podcast, we say we open the Bible and talk about the beauty, goodness, and truth we find there. But beauty, goodness, and truth is a phrase that I first heard from you, Dr. Grant. That is the <laughs> fr- I was introduced to this phrase that does not originate with She Reads Truth, but um, it's been something that we've loved to embrace and study and explore. But Dr. Grant, you're the person who introduced that to me. Can you talk a little bit about the concept of beauty, goodness, and truth? I mean, we've been in many ways talking about it this whole episode. We have. You know, it's a wonderful phrase, and it's not original with me. Actually, Cassiodorus, who laid it— I knew it, you would know. <laughs> yeah, t- taking it from Augustine, sort of laid it out in that order, beauty, goodness, and truth— Because the pursuit of truth is oftentimes the pursuit of academics. The pursuit of goodness is the pursuit of many social reformers. The pursuit of beauty is the pursuit of artists. And what Cassiodorus and before him Augustine understood was that all of them are attributes of our God. And we're able to perceive the attributes of God usually first through beauty, not through truth. It's beauty that reveals the truth, the beauty of God's holiness. And that beauty oftentimes tenders us. And before we run to the truth, it tenders us for goodness, the flowers on the table, the desire to please a husband or a wife, the desire for children to be raised in goodness. And beauty and goodness, therefore, lay the foundation for us to then run after the eternal truth. In a sense, this is something that in Ecclesiastes, Solomon is wrestling with. There's all of this beauty all around him, and he spent his life attempting to do good. Where's the eternal truth in this? So beauty, goodness, and truth is, I think, a wonderful little way, a shorthand way of saying everything good that God pours forth as means of grace to draw us to himself. Yeah. Amanda, I think you've said, you know, all beauty is God's beauty. All goodness is God's goodness, and all truth is God's truth. And You're right. Shorthand is a good way to put it, Dr. Grant. It's our shorthand even now for each other, you know, as we point out the beauty, goodness, and truth that we see. So I'm just so curious, what, if you could share with us something, a way that you're seeing interacting with beauty, goodness, and truth in your life right now, what is it? Well, it's springtime in Tennessee. (laughs) Amen. I love Tennessee in the spring. And just outside of Karen, my wife's study in our home is a dogwood tree. I know it. And that dogwood tree rustles in the wind and the bright, bright white and pink and scarlet flowers are there. And every time I see it, I think of all of the ways that dogwoods both represent in art Uh, the gospel Mm -hmm. and the provision of Christ. But I also see that God gives it to me. I don't have to go find it in a book somewhere. I don't have to have a classic painting on the wall. It's portrayed right there in front of me. And so I catch a glimpse of that. And all of a sudden, my mind runs to all of the tree theology in the scripture. Mm -hmm. And I'm just overwhelmed with the way that beauty drives me to goodness and to truth. And so Karen and I love to sit on our back deck and have dinner at this time of year. It's, you know, the cool breeze. Mm-hmm. We actually had this terrible storm <laughs> blow through, and we were sitting out on the deck right as it hit. So we scrambled on the inside. But even that was a demonstration of God's power. It tore up some of our trees, but mm-hmm. it was so incredibly mm-hmm. beautiful and brought us again to the wonder of a sovereign God in the midst of this poor fallen world, giving us these tokens of grace. In the last three years, I have buried my mother, my father, my mentor, and two of my best friends, the husband of my daughter's best friend growing up, and a host of others. And every time I stand at a graveside, 
I was just at one two weeks ago. I am brought back to this remarkable declaration that he makes everything appropriate. He makes everything beautiful mm-hmm. in its time. And I'm so grateful that we can number our days and not despair. We can uh, labor in our tasks and take joy in it. We can eat and we can drink and find joy there because we know it comes from his hand. Amen. Amen. Dr. Grant, could I ask you to read a benediction for us to close this episode from 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight? It's in day five it of the study. <laughs> Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, we will be back with you next week to enjoy a second week of studying the word of the Lord as it is found in the book of Ecclesiastes. Friends, we look forward to that and we thank you for this. And Dr. Grant, until then, what do we say? Keep opening your Bibles. Bibles.